Denver has an air pollution problem, and the world has a climate change problem. All those fancy RTD trains should help fix that, right? If we really want to see a better city, a better world, we have to change. I'm Nathaniel Miner, host of CPR's podcast, Ghost Train. In this show, I take a deep look at how transit could fix big issues our cities are facing, if we let it. Follow Ghost Train wherever you get your podcasts. A quick note just before we start. This episode contains content and language that might not be suitable for everyone. Listener's discretion is advised. When a black man is killed by the police, it's followed by an outpouring of grief and then public outrage. The list of black men fatally shot during a police encounter keeps growing. Sadly, the solution doesn't seem to be on the horizon. Research from the Mapping Police Project shows that black men are disproportionately killed at three times the rate of white Americans. But I don't need to tell black folks that. Unfortunately, African Americans know this pain and trauma all too well. Anybody here? What we're going to do is we're going to move off to the side. I need to move you off the road. Okay, I need to move you off the road so we can get medical up here, okay? Go ahead and sit up All right, awesome. Y'all just shot my fucking cousin. Are y'all serious? In August 2019, Lawrence Stoker watched Colorado Springs police officers kill his 19-year-old cousin, Devon Bailey. From that moment on, he had one simple goal, to change policing forever. I'm Joe Erickson, and this is Systemic a podcast series that tells the stories of those who fight injustice as they attempt to dismantle the status quo. In this episode, how one man worked to turn the worst day of his life into full-scale police reform. Part 2. Survivor. Lawrence Stoker dreamt of making a career in pro football before an injury forced him out of the sport. He's 20 years old, a forklift driver, and a father for the first time. She looks a lot like you, Lawrence, though. She's got your face. Yay! Yay! See, daddy's girl. Every time he looks at his daughter, she reminds him of how lucky he is. Both Lawrence and his cousin Devon Bailey were expecting their first babies at the same time. Only Devon never got the chance to meet his daughter. Before he died, we would talk about our kids because I I had a kid right after that happened. He was having a kid right after that. And we'd talk about our kids, like, people be like, I wonder what you, how cute your daughter going to be. I'd, like, I'd say the same thing, and we'd talk about what we were going to do for them, where we were going to send them to school. We, where we live, it's not the best schooling, but we know 
if we send our kids up to up north Colorado, they'll be cool. Like we used to talk about stuff like that, you know, in our futures and stuff. Lawrence was born and raised in the black neighborhoods of Southeast Colorado Springs. All his family, cousins, aunts, uncles, live within a few blocks. They're a close-knit family and rely on each other for love and support. Growing up, Lawrence and Devon would hang out in the park near their houses. We grew up together. We played football. He was my blood cousin, so, I mean, his, me and our families be chilling, and we've always lived in the same neighborhood ever since we was born. Never moved anywhere or nothing, so we always knew each other. Then, on August 3rd, 2019, everything changed. I had texted him that morning. We was just clowning on each other over Messenger, calling each other ugly and stuff, just clowning. Uh, Devon was like, come down to uh, Charles and Chauncey's. After meeting up with a group of friends, including Anthony Love, they all decided to head back to Devon's place to hang out with his girlfriend, Laquana Gardner. Well, I went down there and they was chilling all down there. Uh, they was drinking, because that's what people do. Uh, they was drinking and just chilling. And while we're there, the guy Anthony Love was getting real drunk and was being loud and stuff like that. But we, that's just normal stuff because that's our friend. But he got to talking like really weird. He got to saying like things like, can't no one here beat me up, stuff like this, just being ignorant. Anthony Love started like being real belligerent, drunk, started throwing stuff on the ground, like trash and stuff. When Anthony Love started to pick on Laquana, Lawrence stepped in between them. We are kind of, we are got in each other's face and uh, he swung at me, he missed, I swung at him and I hit him. He kind of grabbed me, we fell to the ground. So Devon picked us up and he picked me up and then he got mad and wouldn't call it cool and, and he was saying like things like he was going to get us back, we were going to pay for it, he was going to kill us. After this scuffle, Devon and Lawrence left, believing that love would calm down and everything would be cool between friends. The cousins started walking to Lawrence's house. We got to the corner of uh, Donovan Drive, that's where that's right before Proust. And we got to the corner and we walked up Proust just a little bit and I turned around and I seen the cops. But we just keep walking, we didn't even pay them any attention. So then they turn on their lights and like they turn on, they kind of up to us real quick and turn to the side. So I look at him, he look at me. He like, you know what they put up for? Like, I said, no. Not emergency. Hi, I was calling. I'm up Hutchinson and Fountain at the, what's the name of After Lawrence and Devon left the house, a dispatcher received a 911 call from Anthony Love. In it, Love claimed the cousin had robbed and assaulted him. A false report Love would never be charged with. So I'm walking down the street, there's these two black guys. One of them has a gun, they approach me, they're like, what's in your pockets? 
then one of the guys start hitting me and I fall down to the ground and the other guy pulls out again and he's like, you better tell me what's in your pockets. And officer Blake Everson's body camera footage shows another officer, Sergeant Alan Van Land, approaching two men and asking them questions. And I turned around and I seen the cops. He kind of like came up intimidated. He didn't come up like, just any cop, let me talk to you and this and that. He was like, came up with his hands on his uh, gun, looking at me like, Intimidating. What's going on today? Alright. What are your names? What's the reasoning? Alright. So we got a contact that, uh, keep your hands out of your pockets. Oh, Um, possible assault that occurred? Oh, I didn't touch you. Okay. What's your name? Devon. Devon? What do you go by? The way he came up in an officer with his hand on his gun, like, he, you can't, the, the, the body cam, you can only see one view you can't see no one's hands like his hands or his eyes how he's looking at you or his facial expression but he came up like he wanted to do something so that's why i like, kind of threw my hands up real fast when he said that okay put your hands up for me a sec put your hands up right so we got a report of two people similar descriptions possibly having a gun all right so don't reach for your waist we're going to just check and make sure that you don't have a weapon all right Hands up! Hands up! Hands up! Devon runs away from the officers. His hands are near his waistband. Next, seven shots are fired by police. Devon falls to the ground. Three bullets strike him in the back, another in his elbow. The rest were unaccounted for in a public park. Not, not being able to do nothing really, really affects me. I felt helpless when Devon was getting shot. With Devon on the ground bleeding and in handcuffs, officers then discover a gun between his legs. It's the first time they've seen it. Lawrence watches from where they were stopped. I kind of was like froze, like I didn't... I didn't really know what to do, and I, I just started falling on the ground. They got the, the cop got on top of me. I was asking, I was crying. I was like, what, what's wrong with him? Lawrence Stoker was taken into police custody, held for nine hours, and interrogated for seven. While he sat alone, he wondered if his cousin was alive, but the police told him nothing. It was 2am when officers told Lawrence that Devon had been killed. He was released and charged with assault from Love's false 911 call. Lawrence would never be charged for the alleged robbery. He remembers coming home that night to his mum and family. He saw the relief on their faces. They thought he'd been shot too. And then he also saw their grief and disbelief that Devon was gone. When I got home, my dad was on the couch, my mom was on the couch, everyone was crying. It was like, 
I'm just glad it wasn't you. Like my mom was didn't know what to say. I never seen her like that. I was like, I, I was out of it. I didn't. I ain't never been through nothing like that. Devon Bailey's death hit his family hard. After several years getting in trouble with the police, Devonna turned the corner. Though in the weeks before his death, he pleaded not guilty to charges of sexual assault and was awaiting trial, family members, like his uncle, Danny Hill, felt he had lost his life just as he started to get himself together. Starting his family... And he was going along with everything. Got a job, got a car, has a girl, has a kid on the way. Man, it was a whole bunch of scared dudes behind a gun. With the uniform on, with the uniform. I'm mad, I'm pissed, I'm anxious. I'm upset, all of those. You can't roam the street. Without watching your back from the own law that's supposed to protect you. I have a target. I mean, look at me. The same target I have, every black person has. And for Laquana, Devon Bailey's girlfriend, she can never forgive or get over his death. It messes with me every, like, every day. I'm not going to lie. Like, it hurts me. They don't even understand who they took from us. And they don't care. That's how it seems like they don't care. Or every day, I go I go to the park, and I just see these dads with their kids, you know? And, like, I cry because I can't experience that. Like, I can't have him here with me. Like, everything's on me. I can't do nothing. I can't, hey, can I have a break, babe? Can you get the baby for two hours? It's all me. It's not me and him, it's just me. And it hurts. And she's beautiful, she's awesome, she's so happy. And he should be here to see it, and he's not. She's him, she's really him. She's crying right now. I'm sad, guys, I'm sorry. I don't wanna cry, okay. I got this. I'm only 18 and I miss him, I need him and like no one understands that and they took him from me. They really took him from me and I don't like it. They took him from me and Rosiana and he never even got to meet her. And that hurts. Those police officers, I, I guarantee you they have families. I guarantee you they go home to their families. And Devon didn't go home that night. Devon didn't even take another breath that night. All because of them. This is how it has to be for our voices to be heard. While grieving his cousin, Lawrence also experienced the anxiety of facing his assault charges in court. When the trial came, almost three months later, he was acquitted by a jury after only ten minutes of deliberation. But even after that day, 
hard reminders of the incident and what police can do lingered close to home for Lawrence. The cops that arrested me and did that are still in the neighborhood and still patrolling. I go, there's a come and go right up the street from where I live, like two minutes. But there's a spot where they just, they try to catch people speeding and stuff, but it's right at that come and go. And sometimes me and the officer run into each other and he'll be like, what's up, Lawrence? How are you doing? I'll put my head down. But how were the officers still on the street, working as normal? Deadly force is justified if the risk of death to an officer or a member of the community is deemed imminent. In Devon Bailey's case, police argued this. But they had more protection and justification because in Colorado, the law goes further. In the state, police are given the right to shoot a suspect to prevent them from escaping custody. If they reasonably believe the suspect used a deadly weapon or threatened to use one during a crime. It's called the fleeing felon law and there's a grey area when police respond to a false report. But it's this law that the grand jury cited in refusing to indict the officer. In the wake of the shooting and the lack of charges against the officers, tensions grew between the police and the community. Lawrence used this experience to motivate his friend, Charles Chauncey, to rally people to protest the police. We continue and will continue to seek justice. A clear message in the name of a young man. They believe deserved more. We still got these officers that are out here that murdered Devon Bailey when he was running away and he got shot. Lawrence also started attending NAACP meetings and was mentored by older activists. I protest a lot. I've been protesting ever since Devon died. So the protesters when Devon died were harder for me because I was new. I would see like my older activists people that were teaching me and helping me through stuff, I would see them get arrested and some stuff would happen inside the group to where they would collide and bash heads because they were just trying to get so much done in a short period of time. So they would collide sometimes. I ain't gonna lie, they made me dead. I don't, Colorado Springs police don't play. (laughs) Like how people were able to do like run right by them and stuff. Like, the, the police here grab you. They, they'll choke you, they'll throw you on the ground. They're not gonna go for the, you assembling and you getting a lot of people. They don't do that. Not here for some reason. A few weeks after Devon was killed, protests grew after another police-involved death in Colorado. The long weekend brought more demonstrations calling for justice for Elijah McClain. Will Carter lives in the neighborhood next to Elijah McClain's. All black lives matter, but when it happens close to home, you know, it hits a little different. So. 
Elijah McLean, a 23-year-old black man, died in hospital after police used chokeholds and held him on the ground for close to 15 minutes. A neighborhood called 911 to report seeing McLean walking down the street, flailing his arms, but that he appeared to pose no threat. The pressure from these protests didn't go unnoticed. When I found out really what happened to Devon Bailey, um, someone who uh, grew up in the same community that I did, and how his life didn't matter to those law enforcement officers, that was hugely problematic for me. Leslie Howard is a Democrat in the Colorado House of Representatives. Together with other legislators, Howard started thinking how could they create change in policing? And so we immediately began discussing a bill and how problematic our laws are to allow these types of racist, quite frankly, behaviors to happen and go unchecked in the, on the streets of Colorado. The ideas they discussed would become the foundation of Senate Bill 217. Its focus was to address key issues in police restraints, chokeholds, and put an emphasis on police accountability, where police misconduct would lead to criminal charges. Mari Newman, an attorney who represents the families of Devon Bailey and Elijah McLean, helped draft the bill with legislators. She brought forward ideas and wishes of Lawrence Stoker and other family members of Devon Bailey. And so one of the things that we talked about was cases, the murder of Devon Bailey and some others, and the need to have reform in police use of force policies. In particular, one of the issues was that even though the United States Supreme Court ruled back in the 1980s that officers can't shoot somebody in the back as they're fleeing, clearly that message hadn't reached the Colorado Springs Police Department yet. And so one of the things we wanted to make sure to address was to make it clear in Colorado law as well that officers cannot shoot somebody in the back who is fleeing unless they present an imminent threat to somebody else in the community. So we wanted to make that 100% clear. The law is clear that deadly force can only be used when there is an imminent threat of serious bodily injury or death presented to the peace officer or another person. So when we look at this as applied to um, Devon Bailey's case, there was no imminent threat of serious bodily injury or death because Devon Bailey was simply a young man running away as fast as he could. He was not brandishing a weapon. He wasn't threatening the officers. He wasn't threatening any members of the community. But when Colorado legislators reconvened in January 2020, Herod was unable to get momentum behind the police reform bill. And so we had that bill in drafting, but I got to be honest with you, we didn't have the political will to get it even introduced, much less out of a committee and past both chambers. Soon, the whole world started to change. In March 2020, 
the COVID-19 pandemic suspended Colorado's legislative session, leaving any new laws in limbo. And then, on May 25th, George Floyd was killed by a white officer, and Black Lives Matter protests swept the nation. There is a bullet hole in the state capitol. Windows are boarded up and doors locked. The aftermath of a riot that state representative Leslie Harrod says stems from decades of police brutality against people of color. What I know is that people are hurting, people are frustrated, people are angry, and that is showing. They had come to the in the first day of protest, I actually happened to be out there with protesters, um, and we were shot at. A bullet actually went into the state capitol. Basically, chaos ensued. When someone opened fire on them, the bullets narrowly missing her. If you think about it, from there to there, and I was standing right there. In the midst of widespread protests, Lauren Stoker saw a bigger opportunity to reform policing. After the Vaughn thing happened, the George Floyd stuff came up. Me... Charles Chauncey and our mentors made a group with more people that could get into City Hall. So eventually we came together, we had a discussion. In this same time, the Colorado legislative session reopened and Leslie Herod used the moment to help quickly revive police reform. In those first few days of protest, we heard a clear referendum from all four corners of the state of Colorado that we needed to act and create change. It wasn't until the murder of George Floyd and the subsequent elevating of the murder of Elijah McClain that we really saw people take to the streets and demand change. It was the people of Colorado that said no more. We want law enforcement to be held accountable. and We want our lawmakers to lead that charge. Less than a month after George Floyd's death, Senate Bill 217 was signed into law. This is a long overdue moment of national reflection. The law, the first in the nation to hold officers who abuse their position personally liable, as well as those who don't intervene. Chokeholds are banned, body cameras required, and nonviolent crimes can no longer be met with deadly force. Senate Bill 217 also rescinded the flea and felon law. Lawrence's work in helping pass the bill is seen by many as a huge step forward and a momentous achievement, but he viewed it as failure. We came together, we had a discussion, but the discussion got twisted up and kind of like, just went a whole different direction. Like, it wasn't even my voice that was in it no more when this bill came out. It was like other people that have a bigger voice and know how to talk politics, you know? Like, that. that's what they mattered about. Regardless of the fleeing felon law, the officer who shot and killed Devon Bailey was also protected from prosecution because the police believed Devon posed an imminent threat to life. It's an argument law enforcement can use to justify lethal action. And that's also what a grand jury decided when electing not to pursue charges against the officers. This upset Lawrence. 
He was a witness to those actions, but he wasn't called to testify in front of the grand jury. He wasn't there to advocate for his cousin or give him the opportunity to argue against the police story. He also wanted the bill to push grand juries in these cases to be more open and the system to be revised so that victims and the families would be given the opportunity to be heard. Lawrence's attorney, Mari Newman, explained the importance of this change. One of the real challenges with the grand jury system is that it's cloaked in secrecy. We have no idea what was presented to that grand jury. But what we know is that the initial investigation that was performed into the conduct of the Colorado Springs Police Department was done by members of the El Paso County Sheriff's Department and others who are very friendly to the Colorado Springs Police. And so, you know, what we see is an investigation that was tainted from the very beginning. So it's no surprise when a grand jury that's provided with a tainted investigation comes out without an indictment. That's exactly what the process is designed to do. So the fact that the grand jury proceedings were cloaked in secrecy and we have no idea what the information was that they were using. There was nobody from Devon Bailey's family or his counsel or anybody who was advocating for his rights who was allowed not just to present information to the grand jury, but even to know what it was the grand jury heard. For Lawrence, as long as this system stands, people remain unprotected from police violence. And it sent Lawrence into a deep depression. So, something I've noticed about politics is that they want you to budge for them, but they'll try to make it seem like they did something, you know? We pass something, but in a way that it won't stop anything. That hurt me because... It hurt my self-esteem because I'm someone that, like, is a happy, good person before. Like, I I was never a slacker. I had my own before, a whole bunch of stuff. And then after that happened, it kind of, I don't know how to explain it, but it changed me. Like, I kind of got, got lazy in certain ways, like. Still to this day, I can't sleep. Like, I'd be like, am I stupid? Why can I not sleep? And I'll be thinking about, like, this dream or what happened or something. Like, just a lot's mushed up. And you wouldn't think. I, I, I didn't believe in stuff like that. I ain't gonna lie. Like, I never believed in depression or anything like that before. But then after I started noticing, I got real, like, lazy. Started losing things in life. My mindset changed. I started noticing the evil and like strategies that like the world has, like America has in for us like a lot. For his own sanity, Lawrence needed to step back from protesting and his work on police reform. He's still grieving and needs time to heal. But it's hard to move on when your cousin was shot 
two blocks away from your home. Every day he walks past the spot where Devon was killed. Every day he relives the moment. Every day. I, uh, if I'm not in a car, I walk past it and it's two minutes away. My friend, well, my best friends live right there on that street. So, and then we have a portrait of him on, on the wall too, right there with Devon. So I pass that, I look at that. I think about it, then like I go on the street where it happened and his candles and cross are right there. But there's a circle that we had made when we had spray painted the um, street. And that's where he died because there's like always this shiny spot where his blood was. And like I always had this eerie feeling on this on the on that street. And it makes me walk the long way because I don't like to go past it too much anymore. The community created a memorial for Devon Bailey in the same space. Graffiti on the ground, uh, circle where we're going to walk to is where he died, the exact spot where he died. We have his memorial is right on the top of the cement. It used to be all white and there used to be different crosses, but you remember the police came over here and dismantled it, tore it down. We need to kind of clean it. <laughs> It's kind of stuff falls all the time. We had um, so we were working to to do more stuff for it before the coronavirus hit. We were gonna get a cement, um, like a tombstone, actual tombstone where you can sit on to replace all this, for it can look more, uh, more and more better and better and better. All this used to be there used to be this whole thing right here used to be covered up. I mean covered in. Devon stuff, along with Devon, but the police came and covered all of it up and took this away. So we had to come back again and do it again. And they came and covered it up back again. So a lot of the days we would have to come back and just add little stuff time by time back again. A lot of stuff. It used to go all the way down there. Instead of bringing the community together, the memorial heightened racial tensions in the area. People would come over here. I don't even know who it would be or what they would be driving or what, but they would come like, like on like a mailbox right there. They would come right like Devon's in hell, a bunch of stupid stuff that shouldn't be on there. Um, they would write like, oh, the cop, the, the cop's a hero, fuck Devon, like just stupid stuff like that. Lawrence has been dealing with his trauma on his own. There are a few counsellors who specialise in this type of grief. To have a loved one shot and the killer protected by law and patrol the streets you live is a unique type of trauma. Lawrence seeks solace and comfort whenever he visits Devon Bailey's memorial. So I used to go there and lay down in the the dirt and ask him like questions and like why and how and tell him about his daughter and tell him about my daughter and kind of just act like he's there, like I'm crazy. <laughs> so when I can't sleep, it's like a movie. I, I replay it over and over in my head. It just, it just dawns on me at night when I can't sleep. <laughs> 
Just death is always in my head. I'm 20. Hopefully, over time, Lawrence will know how much his influence changes to police culture and accountability. He's a part of something special, a community movement demanding more change and more reforms. For Representative Leslie Harrod, it's pressure from people like Lawrence that created change in Colorado. She says that is a lesson for those seeking police reform across the nation. The passage of 217, I think, really just showed the community how much power they had and reminded us, right, reminded us and community who legislators are accountable to. And that's the constituents who are outside of the building who said, this system is brutal, it's inhumane, it's unjust, and it's racist, and it must end. Activists and a few legislators are fighting for a fair and just law enforcement. In our next episode, there are some within police departments who will not remain silent. You know, the history of dogs go back to slavery. Dogs were used to kill disobedient slaves, to torture them. So we have to be very careful about how we use dogs and how they're symbolized in law enforcement, especially now with police relations and the citizens. Next time on Systemic. Hey, it's Joe. Since you listened to the whole episode, I have a quick favor to ask you. Take a moment to find Systemic from Colorado Public Radio on whatever podcast app you use and give us a like, a rating or a review. If you think the stories we're sharing are important, if you think the voices in Systemic deserve to be heard, all you have to do to help spread the word is like us, rate us or review us. It helps others find this podcast. Thanks for listening. And thanks for supporting podcasts from Colorado Public Radio.